Section 17 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois-Doyle. The Medici, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. In 1470, soon after his father Piero's death, there came, as on each occasion that the family gained a new head, another attempt to destroy the Medici. Dieti Salvi Neroni and the others exiled with them thought they saw an opportunity for doing this now that Piero was gone, and in view of Lorenzo's youth and inexperience. Accordingly, having collected a force, they seized Prato, the nearest of Florence's subject towns, and hoped by means of concurrent intrigues in Florence and assistance from Ferrara to succeed in the above object. But Lorenzo was equal to the occasion. The intrigues in the city were foiled by his tact. Troops were sent from Florence, who retook Prato, and the rebellion was put down. In 1741, the Duke of Milan, Galeazzo Sforza, came with his wife, Bona of Savoy, and two daughters, and a great retinue, to visit Lorenzo the latter having himself twice been entertained at Milan, once in 1465, when at the age of 16 he was present at the marriage of Ippolita Sforza to the Duke of Calabria, and again in 1469, when he went to represent his father as godfather to Galeazzo Sforza's infant heir. On the occasion of this visit to Florence, the Duke of Milan, desiring to overawe and impress his two young hosts, as well as the people of Florence, came with a great display of his wealth and importance. We are told that his retinue included councillors, chamberlains, courtiers, and vassals, twelve litters covered with gold brocade in which the ladies of the party travelled, fifty grooms in liveries of cloth of silver, numerous servants all clad, and even kitchen boys in silk and velvet, fifty war horses with saddles of gold brocade, gilded stirrups, and silk-embroidered bridles, and five hundred couple of hounds with huntsmen, falcons, and falconers, together with trumpeters, players, and musicians, also a bodyguard of one hundred knights and five hundred infantry. But all this did not have the effect he intended. He stayed at the Medici Palace, which taught him a valuable lesson, for desirous as he had been to display to the Florentines how much greater was the wealth and splendor of Milan, he was forced by what he saw around him to acknowledge that art was superior to mere costliness, while we find him declaring that in all of Italy he had not seen so many pictures by the first masters, statues, gems, bronzes, beautiful vases, medallions, and rare books as he saw collected in the palace of the Medici. The result was that he departed at the end of his visit with a greatly increased respect for the Medici, and more inclined than he had previously been to maintain the alliance with Florence. From this time forward we find Milan following in the steps of Florence, and its duke constantly writing to Lorenzo asking him to send him the foremost artists, and endeavouring in every way to make Milan also a centre of learning and art. In July of this same year Pope Paul II died and was succeeded by Sixtus IV. On the election of the latter, a signoria of Florence sent an embassy to Rome in accordance with the usual custom to congratulate him. Lorenzo formed one of the representatives of Florence and says in his memoirs that he was received by the new pope very honorably. These satisfactory relations, however, did not last. 
Sixtus IV soon became a pope whose crimes caused mankind to loathe the very name of the papacy, and before many years were over, he was forming a formidable plot against Lorenzo's life and the independence of the Florentine state. In June 1472 took place an event in regard to which Lorenzo's conduct has been so grossly distorted by his detractors that the episode has to receive notice. Volterra, the most turbulent of Florence's subject towns, had raised a revolt in connection with some local disputes, and on the matter being referred to Florence, had refused to submit to the decision of the government. Riots occurred in which many lives were lost, and the Florentine envoy only just escaped from the city with his life. Subsequently, Volterra sent to Florence, offering submission. Some were for accepting it, but Lorenzo was against this, on the ground that the offense had been serious— that it was not the first occasion of the kind on the part of Volterra, and that the city ought to receive punishment. It may have been an error of judgment, but even this cannot be known. While even if it were so, it must be remembered that Lorenzo was at this time only 23 years old. Eventually a force was sent against Volterra, commanded by the Duke of Urbino, neither Florence nor Venice allowing their armies to be commanded by one of their own citizens. And after a month's siege, the town surrendered and opened its gates. Then occurred the lamentable event in question. As the force entered, an affray accidentally took place between some of the troops and the populace, and this rapidly spreading grew into a sack of the town. The Duke of Urbino did everything possible to restrain his troops. He rode among them, protecting the women and children, and he hanged on the spot several of the soldiery who were foremost in inciting the rest. But on such occasions, a medieval force was practically uncontrollable, and in spite of all his efforts, the unfortunate inhabitants were for some hours subjected to outrage and plunder, as though the town had been taken by assault. Lorenzo at once proceeded to Volterra, and did his utmost to mitigate the sufferings which had been endured. He has been severely condemned for this sack of Volterra, but certainly not with justice. It was the result of an accident which he could not have foreseen, and he showed by his subsequent conduct how much he deplored it. In 1473, we find Louis XI writing to Lorenzo, asking him to effect a marriage between the Dauphin and Leonora of Aragon, the eldest daughter of King Ferrante of Naples. Louis XI writes to Lorenzo quite as an equal, and this, with the request itself, show what a position the latter had by this time made for himself, though as yet only 24 years of age. But the King of France was too late in this request, for the Princess Leonora had already been betrothed elsewhere, and on the 22nd of June, a very grand cavalcade, scarcely less imposing than that of the Duke of Milan two years before, arrived in Florence, escorting her to Ferrara to be married to Ercole I, Duke of Ferrara who had succeeded his brother Borso in 1471. She was accompanied by two brothers of Duke Ercole, the lords of Capri, Mirandola and Correggio, the dukes of Amain and Atri, and a number of other nobles. Entering by the Porta Romana, this brilliant cortege rode through the city. Leonora, dressed all in black velvet, adorned in front with numberless pearls and jewels, with a cape and a little black hat with white feathers. They crossed the Ponte Vecchio and rode up the Palazzo della Signoria, where Leonora, without dismounting, received an address from the Signoria, and then rode on to the Medici Palace, where she stayed during her visit, and at dinner was waited upon by her two young hosts, Lorenzo and Giuliano. 
She stayed with him several days, during which various festivities were arranged for her amusement. Among these was a dance on the 24th of June at the Palazzo Lenzi, near the Porta Prato. In those days of inferior artificial light and small rooms, such dances generally took place during daylight and in the open air, as was the case with this one, which was given on the Prato, or open stretch of grass beside the city gate, between the palace and the Arno. Probably those who took part in it were dressed much in the same way as is related of a dance which took place on a previous occasion in the Piazza della Signoria, in which the young men were all dressed in rich green cloth, with kid boots reaching up to their thighs, and the young ladies in splendid dresses high to the throat and adorned with jewels and pearls. Leonora also witnessed the annual horse race, the Corso, which took place on the same day the starting point being from the Prato and the course being from thence by the Via della Vigna, the Mercato Vecchio, and the Corso to the Porta Alia Croce. After these and other festivities, Leonora departed for Ferrara, much pleased with the two young Medici. In 1475 there took place a more than usually grand tournament, the most splendid of all the spectacles during these joyous nine years, it was called specially Gellianos, as that in 1469 had been called Lorenzo's, and from the elaborate preparations made for it, the interest it aroused far beyond the limits of the Florentine state, the number and importance of the visitors invited by the two young Medici to be their guests for the occasion, and the extravagantly magnificent pageant which it presented, this tournament became the event of the time. It was held in the Piazza Santa Croce, the usual place for these grand spectacles, which Piazza, though it now looks so cold and gray, has seen more brilliant and gorgeous displays than perhaps any other place of the kind in Europe. Lucrezia Donati was again the queen of the tournament, and the beautiful Simonetta Cataneo, who had lately been married at the age of 16 to Marco Vespucci, and though a Genoese by birth, was now the acknowledged belle of Florence, was the tournament's queen of beauty. The splendor of the dresses and appointments on this occasion exceeded even those of the tournament of 1469. Giuliano, now 22, wore a suit of silver armor, and his entire dress is said to have cost 8,000 florins. His and Lorenzo's helmets were designed by Verrocchio, who also painted Giuliano's standard. Giuliano's handsome looks and gallant bearing won all hearts, and whether it is the result of his skill in the combat or his good looks, he was awarded the prize. This notable tournament, having formed so prominent an event, was immortalized both in poetry and in painting, and since nothing accorded with the spirit of the age, which did not contain profuse allusion to classical literature, both arts clothe what they have to say in classic dress. Poetry speaks first, by the mouth of the youthful prodigy Politian, and just as the tournament of 1469 had been immortalized by Pulci's poem Theron, so was this one of Galliano by the still more celebrated poem of Polizian, entitled La Giostra de Galliano de' Medici. Roscoe says these two tournaments are chiefly notable because they called forth two of the most celebrated poems of the 15th century, La Giostra di Lorenzo de' Medici by Pulci and La Giostra di Galliano de' Medici by Polizian. The latter poem contains about 1,400 lines and has been uniformly allowed to be 
one of the earliest productions in the revival of letters that breathes the true spirit of poetry. Still more widely known, however, is the record by which painting has commemorated this tournament, for no less than three of Botticelli's chief pictures refer to this celebrated tournament, and are simply his way of recording in painting the same matters which have been spoken by Polizian in poetry. The Botticelli, Mori, Suo, expresses what he has to say with such a wealth of allegory that this has not always been fully recognized. These pictures are The Birth of Venus, now in the Uffizi Gallery, Florence, His Mars and Venus, now in the National Gallery, London, and His Return of Spring, now in the Accademia, Florence, all three pictures being painted for Lorenzo the Magnificent. Polizien, in his poem, following the classical fashion of the day, is allusion to the tournament's queen of beauty, Simonetta, describes the birth of Venus, and Botticelli does the same in painting, following exactly Polizien's words. How closely he has done so is well described by Mrs. Addy, who says, The composition of the picture was evidently derived from Poliziano's poem of the Giostra. In a passage adapted from one of the Homeric hymns, the poet tells us how the newborn Aphrodite was blown by the soft breath of the zephyrs on the foam of the Aegean waves to shore. Heaven and earth, he sings, rejoice at her coming. The hours wait to welcome her and spread a star's own robe over her white limbs, while countless flowers spring up in the grass where her feet will tread. All this exquisite imagery is faithfully reproduced in Sandro's painting. He has represented his Venus in a diomene, laying one hand on her snowy breast, the other on her loose tresses of golden hair, a form of virginal beauty and purity, as with feet resting on the golden shell, she glides softly over the rippling surface of the waves. He has painted the winged zephyrs hovering in the air, linked fast together, blowing the goddess to the flower-strewn shore, and the shower of single roses fluttering about her form. Only instead of the three hours of Homer's hymn in Polietziano's poem, he shows us one fair nymph in a white robe embroidered with blue corn, flowers springing lightly forward to offer Venus a pink mantle sewn with daisies. In the laurel groves along the shore, we see a courtly allusion to the laurel who sheltered the songbirds that caroled to the Tuscan spring, while in the background the eye roams across long reaches of silent sea to distant headlands, sleeping under the cool gray light of early dawn. The picture charms us by its delightful mixture of the spirit of ancient Greece with that of the Renaissance, as well as by its life and movement, and its sensation of the free air of nature. As Steinman says, we seem to hear the tremulous rustle of the laurel grove and the gentle splash of the waves. Following this, we have the second picture. The tournament is over, Galliano has carried all before him, and rests from his fatigues, basking in beauty's smiles. Polizian, in his poem alluding to Galliano as the victor of the tournament, has told the story of Mars and Venus, and described Venus reclining in a woodland glade, robed in gold-embroidered draperies, watching Mars with limbs relaxed, lying asleep on the grass, while little goat-footed satyrs played with his armor. This scene Botticelli takes for his second picture, and as before follows closely Polizian's words. And then, having devoted one picture to the tournament's queen of beauty, and one to the victor in its mimic warfare, Botticelli makes his third picture. 
the most important of the three. Relate to Lorenzo and his part in all this, gathering up in one view the whole subject of these pastimes. This Botticelli does with great talent, and in a manner all his own. He takes for his text the celebrated standard, which had been born in front of Lorenzo at both his and Galliano's tournaments, with its motto, Le Temps Revienne. Its device of the bay tree, which had appeared dead again, putting forth its leaves, and its allusion to the new era of youth and joy which Lorenzo had inaugurated, and had likened to the return of spring after the gloomy months of winter. Making the leading thought of his picture the theme of Lorenzo's standard, Botticelli paints for him his beautiful picture, The Return of Spring, the Primavera, perhaps the most widely admired of all Botticelli's pictures. As before, Botticelli connects his picture with the recent tournament by introducing Guiliano and Simonetta, but he wishes to refer not only to this one tournament, but to all these pastimes, to their having been inaugurated by and taking place under the fostering care of Lorenzo, and also to the latter's talents as a poet, in which domain he is already beginning to earn a great reputation. And so Botticelli depicts for us a scene of light-hearted, youthful joy representing the return of spring, and by his great talent contrives that the entire picture shall speak of Lorenzo, and breathe the very spirit of the poems in which the latter had sung of the joys of Maytime in Tuscany. Shielded from rough winds and scorching sun by a grove of orange trees, backed by the ever-present laurel, Queen Venus, Simonetta, stands presiding over the return of spring to Tuscany. The graces dance before her. From out a laurel grove at her side, the three spring months, March, April, May, or it may be zephyr, fertility, and flora, come bringing flowers of every hue. Mercury, Galliano, scatters the clouds of winter. And the little blind god of love aims his arrows recklessly around. Lorenzo's tournament motto of Le Temps Rivien could be written below the picture as its name. So beautifully does Botticelli bring it, the occasion on which it was used, the meaning which it had, and Lorenzo's talent for poetry describing the beauties of nature, all in one glance before our eyes. Some consider this picture Botticelli's masterpiece, while others would give that honor to his Madonna of the Magnificat. The verdict will depend chiefly upon the temperament of the observer, but whether the return of spring can be considered his masterpiece or not, none can fail to praise what has been well termed his rhythmic grace, as well as the surpassing art with which Botticelli has made it speak of Lorenzo, his acts, his poetry, and the motto by which he signified the introduction of a brighter era. But dark clouds were coming on the horizon, which were long to overcast all these bright scenes of joy, putting an end forever to Lorenzo's youth and all the happy times which he and Guiliano had enjoyed together. In April 1476, before Polizian had finished his poem or Botticelli had even begun to paint his three pictures, the tournament's poor queen of beauty, Simonetta de Vespucci, whose lovely face looks at us so wistfully in Botticelli's Birth of Venus and of whom Polizian says she was so sweet and charming that all men praised her and no women abused her, was dead being carried off by rapid consumption after a few weeks of illness. Lorenzo, who was then at Pisa, superintending his new university, and had sent his own physician to attend her and to furnish him with daily bulletins when he heard the news, went out into the calm spring night to walk with a friend, and as he was speaking of the dead lady, he suddenly stopped and gazed at a star which had never before seemed to him so brilliant. See, he exclaimed, 
either the soul of that most gentle lady hath been transformed into that new star or else hath it been joined together thereunto then followed in december fourteen seventy six the murder of the duke of milan galeazzo sforza which upset the balance of power in italy and changing all political relations involved lorenzo in serious anxieties and soon afterwards came the terrible patsy conspiracy and the bright handsome giuliano lorenzo's constant companion in work and play and on whose sound sense he had grown greatly to rely was foully murdered and lorenzo himself plunged into a serious war and many troubles End of section seventeen